Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Daniel Bessner. He is the Ann H. H. and Kenneth B. Pyle Assistant Professor in American Foreign Policy in the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. His most recent book, Democracy in Exile, shows how the experience of the Weimar Republic's collapse and the rise of Nazism informed Hans Speyer's work as an American policymaker and institution builder. Bessner delves into Speyer's intellectual development, illuminating the ideological origins of the expert-centered approaches to foreign policymaking and revealing the European roots of Cold War liberalism. If you're concerned about American foreign policy and our own intervention in many parts of the world, this is a conversation you won't want to miss. I give you Daniel Bester. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you have a forthcoming book here, Democracy in Exile, which is about Hans Speyer and the rise of the defense intellectual. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, right? I'm seeing defense intellectuals like every morning on Morning Joe, different sort of analytical news outlets, right? I mean, these are these are people that probably make up a pretty prominent part of our cultural landscape that most people don't know. Oh, that's what they're called. Yeah, absolutely. People like Paul Wolfowitz, people like Elliot Abrams, people like Andrew Bassovitz. These are all people who one might consider... Maybe Bassovitz a bit less so, but people might cons- all consider these people to be defense intellectuals, you know, academics or people who started their careers in the academy who have become critical uh, features of the U.S. foreign policymaking landscape, right? Like intellectuals, the smart guys, the so-called best and the brightest, the experts who help decision makers make U.S. foreign policy. Supposedly better, but we could talk about whether or not that's actually the best the and the brightest getting us into places like <laughs> Vietnam. Vietnam and Iraq, yeah, they've they've done a bang up job in in the last uh, in the last few decades, and you, in fact, I think at least see a rejection of these types of people to, in some regards, with the election of Trump, who really spent his campaign critiquing the experts for getting the U.S. into Iraq and essentially saying they have done such a terrible job, I could do better, or at least why couldn't I do better? Don't you think American foreign policy would just have gone so much better over the past decades if they just watched The Princess Bride. What does the one guy say? The two things you have to know, never get involved in a land war in Asia and never mess with a Sicilian when death is on the line. I feel like just no land wars in Asia, a lot of it would have worked out better. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of truth to that. And the, the problem is when you're a defense intellectual, right? You can't really say don't do anything because that kind of goes against your whole reason for being. So the sorts of the very existence of this of this career and in, in the, the kind of capitalist economy, the political economy we have right now almost necessitates that defense intellectuals will counsel war or intervention or some sort of interaction with the world that other people whose careers didn't necessarily depend on that might not do. So when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, I think that, I think there there's there's truth to that, and it's kind of ironic because defense intellectuals, when they first became an institutionalized, you know, feature of the foreign policy landscape in the '40s and the '50s, one of the main justifications for them was that they wanted to ensure that the military didn't run foreign policy because they argued for the military 
when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And they said by bringing sort of intellectual analysis, academic analysis into the into the uh, into the the policymaking apparatus, they would actually prevent military intervention and lead to more peaceful uh, international relations. But that hasn't quite turned out to be the case. And you, you know that Hans Speer, he's this German intellectual. He is in the Weimar Republic, which is, you know, this interesting time in Germany's history in between the, the two world wars, which is this progressive and yet not the most stable kind of democratic culture. And he's kind of in the left wing there. He's got socialist sort of sympathies, right? And then he's married to a Jewish woman. Yes. uh, And they wind up leaving Germany as the Nazis come to power, goes to the new school. And there's a bunch of these kind of uh, exiles, like European exiles, right? They hang around places like the new school. And you make this interesting point in the book that although like there was this kind of allergy to European thinking in general, like European as a continent on the American sort of defense establishment. They had all these European emigrates, though, like Henry Kissinger and people like Spare running around and shaping the discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think that sort of cr- criticism of Europe becomes more of a thing particularly after World War II, when Europe essentially committed suicide in the Second Thirty Years' War, if you want to refer to it as that between World War I and World War II. But but these guys, people like Speyer and Kissinger, um, really had this 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 epistemological, what I call them in the book, this epistemological authority because they were attached to an intellectual tradition that really created m- most of the sophisticated modern social sciences and social theory. I mean, the German tr- uh, tradition specifically, you have Marx, you have Weber, you have this guy, Karl Mannheim, and of course, the, the French tradition as well. Um, so they have this this authority that really becomes critical for um Americans uh, in the in the fifties and the sixties and beyond, even as they turned away from Europe as a place to really bring ideas from, they had this huge pool of exile talent upon which to draw. In addition to Kissinger and Speyer, if if uh, any if you or your listeners are familiar with uh, international relations theory and classical realism, the founders of that were, were all Germans. People like Hans Morgenthau, people like John Hertz, people like Arnold Wolfers. So Germans, uh, and particular German thinking, has totally shaped how Americans understand the world uh, in general and understand international relations in particular. And what I think that is, is that that's a bit of a problem because these German exiles had a very peculiar historical experience living in the Weimar Republic in the 1920s. Uh, most of them, if not all of them, coming from the political left, as you mentioned. Speyer was it was not only sympathetic to socialism, he was a, a real hardcore socialist on the left wing of the Social Democratic Party of Germany, but turned away from Marxist thought because he thought that Marx had misdiagnosed where history would go. Marx said as people would become, would become poorer, they would vote for the, for the, the socialist, or at least have that Spire interpreted it um, in a democratic state. But instead, what happened, at least in Spire's and many of these other people's minds, is that the workers actually voted for um, either the communists, which was bad enough, but even worse than that, the Nazis. And this led to a, a significant skepticism of democracy as a political form, uh, in both the American context and in the international context that I think really has shaped U.S. foreign policy since 1945 in what I would term uh, the American empire. And and you kind of write that Speyer, when, as I guess maybe his more uh, rosy-eyed or opt- hopeful optimistic self, 
He looks when he's in, in in his Weimar years. He's looking at democracy as a sort of egalitarian force. Is is it, it's not just procedural over against totalitarian right. stuff. That it's actually something that contributes to human flourishing and actually takes the aggregate benefits of modernity and spreads them out more in a more equitable fashion to the whole populace. By the time he's a little more hardened, it's like it's procedural thing. It's 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 hey, we've got you we're we're an open society, we're democratic, we're representative as opposed to fascist or a, a sort of Stalinist communist kind of setup. Yeah, and I think this is a really critical transition uh in, in American political thought between really the early 1900s and roughly let's say 1950. Uh, whereas in the early 1900s, democracy, of course, is a term that could have very many different meanings, right? It can mean a ton of different things to a ton of different people. And in both the American and the German contexts before the 40s, uh, let's say, before the Cold War really took off in the late 1940s, there's an idea that democracy doesn't just mean that everyone has equal access to voting. Right. Or that everyone could that that democracy is fulfilled when people vote, which is what what one might term the procedural understanding of democracy as long which basically means as long as people have an equal access to the procedure of democracy, democracy exists. But rather, there's a more expansive definition of democracy that includes social and economic equality, not total equality. These people weren't naive. They didn't think that everyone would be equal in absolutely all respects. They weren't communists. They didn't think there should be no hierarchies or no divisions in society based on a variety of different things. But there was an idea that, for example, economic um, wealth should be distribu- uh, distributed more equally. But as time goes on, and really- and people, people that are representing this thought, right, are like, this is who Glenn Beck decried for years, right, in his right. cable show at five o'clock, like everyone from Teddy Roosevelt to Woodrow Wilson, this progressive movement in American politics that you find in both parties that actually sought to do procedural reforms that actually did flatten things out a little bit more, right? That, that actually well, thought that, 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 and this is now, and again, now in, in all sorts of conservative talk radio, right? When you hear the term progressivism, I mean, that's akin to the forces of evil, right? This is this kind of, but that, that actually was a, was a, was a tradition that was that was flourishing in the early part of the, of the 20th century. Absolutely. It was trans-party. And this is why you get things like right-wing progressivism, someone like Roosevelt and more left-wing progressivism, someone like, let's say, John Dewey. right? But there was an idea that that you had these new technologies in modernity, right? these new industrial capacities, these new communications technologies, and you could actually use them to create a more equal society. But I think, at least in the American context, the confrontation with fascism, first and then later Soviet communism, really leads a bunch of American elites, again, from both parties. This is a kind of a bipartisan consensus to really distrust, quote unquote, the people, the people which are really at the center of the declaration and the constitution, et cetera. But there's this notion that you couldn't really trust them, especially when democracy faces an existential threat, right? And you have the isolationist movements of the 30s and the very early 40s. People don't want to confront Hitler um, at first. And then uh, later on, people are worried sorry, elites are worried that American people don't want to confront the Soviets, right? So all you can do is make society an elite-run society, and democracy then becomes this very narrow understanding of essentially the vote. And this is also what Americans think democracy should be in other countries, right? If you remember Iraq, when they held their first elections, what did people focus on? The vote, right? That democracy was achieved with the vote. Nothing about social equality. Nothing about economic equality. And this is like the Arab Spring, right? What happens? Exactly. We want a kind of liberal democracy, right, in classical sense, where it's not just... 
the vote, but their inalienable rights where right. things can't, where, where you can't just get mob rule and okay, what if the, you know, <laughs> what if, uh, the vote leads to more totalitarian practices, you know, like right, right, because right. the majority of people want them, you know, exactly. that, I mean, that's, this that's is the, the problem. problem. And this is the problem that liberalism currently faces with Trump, right? Like th- this is, you heard about this, uh, a lot of this sort of discourse after the 2016 election, right? Where people were essentially critiquing uh, people of the, of the liberal establishment of the liberal elite were essentially critiquing ordinary Americans for, you know, as, uh, exercising their democratic rights. Now, you could you could make an argument, and I would agree that the electoral college is not precisely democratic, and that Trump, uh, you know, I, I is not someone that I'm in favor of at all. But it, it it is a democratic outcome, right? And and the problem with democracy, the electoral college favors the Democrats, <laughs> right? <laughs> which which right. strikes me as the opposite is true, right? I mean, it's absolutely it, it absolutely gives true, it gives yeah. the advantage it gives the advantage right now. To Republicans, because you, the population centers, you could, you could again in the past few elections, it's always Republicans that lose the popular vote and win the election, <laughs> right? Which, which indicates a real crisis in the in the in the structure of the American government, right? America is almost unique in what might be called the Western world for having only one constitution for a very long time, right? France, Germany have had have have had, have had several different constitutions since the modern states were formed, but the United States has not. Right. And so what we're seeing now, I think, at least, is this very strong divide, particularly between rural and urban in the uh, in the United States, which often aligns with the coasts and the, and the center of the country. Um, that is leading to enormous amounts of political instability, uh, et cetera, et cetera, that we see today. And we might want to con- reconsider at some point in the next few decades uh, the Constitution and the wisdom of having such an ancient document guide still really be the font of our democratic rights and practices. Well, Dennis Leary was on Howard Stern a few months ago, and he said that, you know, he saw this some poll that said the three most respected people in, in the country were Tom Hanks, Oprah, and Denzel Washington. He said, so just screw this electoral system and just have a show. America's got leaders. And right. like a reality, like a talent show. And then you vote with your phones at the end of the show, just like American Idol. Right. And, <laughs> and, and this is... A- and this is, in fact, what people like Spire were saying in the 20s. I mean, they couldn't even imagine the Internet or reality TV, but they were worried about cheap printing, right? They're like with cheap printing presses and you get all these crazy ideas spread and you can't really trust the people in order to make the right decisions. Now, I think there, there's a real I think there's a real insight there. But what Spire did was abandon democracy and essentially uh, embrace a form of epistocracy and olig- oligarchy, which I think is wrong. I think democracy is a gamble, but what you need to do is engage in a, a project of political education, not completely reject the very notion of the people as the as a the font of authority in the in the political system. So when you say epistocracy, I'm guessing you mean epistemic, like basically the people in the know right. are the people that run things. So Ex- you want you want to say you're betting on the educatability of the American people. You have to. I mean, I think this is the ultimate gamble of democracy. Otherwise, you don't have democracy. And I think do you, that, do you worry that Spire Spire is going to beat you at that poker table every time? Like you never. I mean, do you ever do you ever really get rich betting on the educatability of the American people? Right, <laughs> right. And I'm, just, I'm just teasing. I'm teasing. I mean, no, I'm teasing, it's, it's it's true insight, and and I think it's a, I think that it's a paraphrase of a Mencken quote, something along the lines of nobody got, ever got rich betting on the uh, the wisdom of the American uh, citizen or something along those lines. But I think you have to you have to make that gamble, otherwise you don't have democracy even if you lose four out of five times you still have to do it because otherwise you're uh, or you're not a democrat right and this is the problem but the problem that i think liberals and the left needs to confront need to confront in a more coherent way is that these these exiles people like spire they weren't wrong in a sense 
right? Marx said that what would naturally happen was as people uh, as people became impoverished, they would vote for their social and economic interests, and society would necessarily become more equal, right? This is this is what the exiles were thinking. The people who became the exiles were thinking would happen in the, in the teens and the twenties, right? Germany becomes a new state. The people finally have a, have an equal vote, et cetera, et cetera. The socialists could win, and they do win for a while. But then ultimately, the Nazis triumph for a variety of, of reasons, not all due to the people, but to a real degree due to popular support. Right. And so this is a real insight and a real problem with democracy. And the question is, what do you do from that? Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you you talk about Spare read critically the work of Carl Schmitt. Right. Mm -hmm. And and two things he got from Schmitt, although he didn't. There was a lot with which he disagreed with Schmitt. But he this I'm fascinated. You point out that he a like the existential threat to the state that that when a state confronts an existential threat, that's going to, you know, that's going to erode its very capacity to be a state then you got to preserve the state so this is the dick cheney rule if there's right. a one percent chance that a suitcase nuke could go off we do everything we can we crack down and the second one which is like an unto it i mean it's really is is the friend enemy thing geopolitics is all about friends and enemies there's no gray you know there's right. it, and so that that even though you say that you know he and schmidt had different kind of political outlooks or but he takes this from schmidt and, and this fuels the kind of defense intellectual culture right that these notions that and, and so what you say the book is you got to keep you say the beginning like look i don't think we're really happy we, the united states really we're the most powerful nation in the world i don't think there is a significant existential threat and yet the, the defense intellectual establishment's got to come up with that to legitimate their existence right i think that's absolutely true and just to, to clarify a brief point um I use Schmidt more as a way to illuminate Speyer. What I actually think is that Schmidtian ideas, the ideas of friend and enemy and existential threat, were rather prevalent across the Weimar political spectrum, uh, from the this, uh, the communists on the far left to the Nazis on the far right. They had this idea, and what Schmidt did was less invent it, but really give give the um, give this idea a form. So. Um, I think that Speyer didn't necessarily take it from Schmidt. I think Speyer had these ideas, and I use Schmidt as a way to illuminate what Speyer actually thought. There's not um, a direct intellectual uh, strand there. These were ideas that I would say were floating around Weimar, you know, about what do you do in this very, very um, embattled society. And I just want to give a quick plug. There's this great new show on Netflix, Babylon Berlin, which is about the Weimar Republic. I was close to watching it. My wife and I were binge watching and I thought subtitles and I wasn't in the mood to read and watch at the same time. I'm like, it's like I want to read the book or watch the film. But all right, if you're recommending it, I'm going to give this a second, a second it's, look. It's pretty good. I have to say it, it, it's pretty good. And it really gets at the idea about like there's all these political problems in the Weimar Republic and all these really uh, people who really disagreed about fundamental political issues on the uh, the most fundamental being is democracy a good thing, right? So there were an enormous amount of Germans in the 1920s who thought democracy was a fundamentally bad political form for a variety of reasons. One, you couldn't trust the people. Two, it was too slow. You couldn't actually you know mobilize in case of war. There were lots of reasons that they distrusted um democracy. So I mean, you have a really fundamental disagreement there. And the show really explores that, I think, in, a, in an interesting way. But, but what and, we, you, and, we, sorry, and we have this skepticism in, in our own 18th century, right? right? I mean, the founders set up a republic, right, which had certain democratic features, right? But I mean, there's a reason you have the people's house, right? And then the Senate, and then the executive, and then the electoral guard. And, and people aren't even picking the Senate. So, right. you know, I mean, that's the interesting thing. I've heard even... A few years back, people like Rick Perry and other people were arguing 
which is the amendment after 24 the amendment that uh, that made senates the senators popularly elected uh, popular voted uh yeah i i don't i don't know the, i'm not a constitution i forget which amendment yeah. it was but yeah. people still people are arguing against that for states right rights uh, ideas that you know functionally you have the senate looking too much like the house so so there's a deep democratic skepticism even in our own constitutional history yeah i mean i would even go for i totally agree i would go even further back i think there's a democratic skepticism in western thought going back to plato sure what yeah is, sure what is the sure. philosopher king but basically someone who uh, transcends democracy essentially right someone who is both like, able to lead worldly but also to able have the idea you know the philosopher king is kind of like the first defense intellectual who is in it says sense. i forget who says that where who says this basically all political theory is an argument between plato and aristotle in the yeah, West. It's something and, like, and, yeah 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 okay that does there's a little truth to that right like our founders are clearly a little more more on the aristotelian side and flattening right. it out but they're two different forms of aristocrat i mean aristocrat right. a flatter aristocracy versus a kind of you know the, the philosopher king you know it's high risk high reward <laughs> what if you get right. the wrong philosopher king it, 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 exactly. I mean, it, I think it, it, it's a real problem. And this is when you get the wrong philosopher king or the wrong philosopher analyst or philosopher expert, you get Vietnam or you get Iraq or you get the intervention in Libya or, you know, you get a ton of different things that work out very, very poorly. Now, the problem is, what do you do on the other side? Because I do think you need experts, right? You need people. I'm, I'm, I'm an academic. I think knowledge is, is something to be cherished and something to be gone after. So you need people, especially in a knowledge-driven society like our own, uh, an information-driven society like our own, to be really expert in an issue. But these people need to be subject to some form of accountability, and I would prefer a democratic accountability. And they are currently not because they exist in these shadow power state institutions that are not quite subject to traditional forms of democratic accountability, however those might be defined. Yeah, I mean, Inspire, right, winds up in the Rand Corporation. It's, it's interesting that, that you also point out that we could get to in a minute, maybe, because I'm fascinated that he spent time at the New School and just to, all the people from the Frankfurt School that are there. It's just such yeah. an interesting place. But, you know, yeah, I mean, you talk about the shadow the kind of existence in a place like the Rand Corporation. We have places like Blackwater today. We have think tanks and <laughs> stuff. And, and, and then these people are massively employed in places like the Pentagon, right? Right. And we really don't, you know, you don't it's funny even with defense contractors, right? So many so much of the of the losses in places like Afghanistan and Iraq are mitigated because we don't count all the contracting losses. They're they don't go yeah, yeah, and they don't go to Dover. Is a nice word for mercenary. They're mercenary. Right. They don't go to Dover <laughs> and get flags put over them. And so so it's not the same kind of thing like you, you mitigate the or or deceptive about some of the loss, uh, right? It, it, you know, in 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 blood and treasure and things like that. So I mean, you do. I heard somebody say, critical of Obama, that he talks like a comparative religion professor uh, <laughs> and beautiful, and, and and acts like a Blackwater executive at times. <laughs> right, and this is also a peculiar feature of the American state over the course of the 20th century that really has accelerated in the 21st century, was which is the increasing privatization of what are traditionally state functions. And one of the reasons that I think that not the sole reason, of course, there's a lot of different processes, et cetera. But one of the reasons I think is that it it, um, it gets these sorts of uh, what, what might be more slippery things that the United States does as a, as a major world empire, as the major world empire out of the view of the public and out of the view of the Congress to some degree. And I think this is one of the reasons that the state has semi-privatized its functions. And I say semi-privatized 
because let's say you're, you're XE, right? That's Blackwater's new name. And 95% of your contracts are US government, right? To what degree are you truly a private organization? And that goes long way back to the American skepticism of government, which goes back to the founding where you have these pseudo state or parasite institutions actually performing a lot of the functions of the state. And what we see that now is in our war making capacity, which is kind of unique in in U.S. history. And is this why this with the semi privatization that start you see this again, starting with Spire and these emigres and things. And is this why there's so much more continuity between Bush to Obama and Trump? Like as yes. far as the way things are acting, I mean, even if despite that they run against each other, you know, Obama runs against Bush and Bush's way of interacting with the world. Trump lumps them both together and says we're going to run again. And, and yet we're, things don't seem radically different. I mean, it doesn't. I mean, Trump has pulled out of some international things like the climate accord or TPP, which I mean, that's just weird trait. Some of that stuff's just weird. But in general, like what you're saying, when you have this massive corporation like formerly Blackwater XC that's uh, they're still getting 95 percent they still have all these government contracts right. and if they're running all these things on the ground how much is either party's person going to change it right i think i think that's true i think the president and and the party that's in power can make changes at the margins but one has to remember it's not only the bureaucracy that has been kind of institutionalized in the in these sclerotic institutions etc cetera, etc cetera, but it's also organizations like these think tanks blackwater etc cetera, etc cetera, that truly they'll they'll be there and very by design from the be- beginning they're supposed to be what they would say in german überparteilichkeit above party Right. And they were designed specifically to be above parties so that they create could create their own uh, way of viewing the world, their own epistemology and ontology about what the world is. And they, they can work with anyone who's in power. But I want to stress that I don't think this is conspiratorial in any sense. It's not a conspiracy. This is just an, a feature of the American system through which interested actors and parties got together, were smart enough to create institutions uh, in this particular political context that were able to affect policy. So, for example, I think one of the most successful radical ideologies of the last 70 years is not anything on the political left, but rather libertarianism. Libertarianism in the 50s was considered to be far beyond the pale of anything that would be part of the Overton window. But what libertarians did in a non-conspiratorial way was create institutions that were able to get their policies into the hands of the policymakers that mattered, which is something that the political left never did. And so I think that one has to be careful not to consider this and, in a conspiratorial and, manner. And Republicans have done that too, right, over the past yes. couple of decades where, you know, this is how Mike Pence got his start, right? It's kind of, he's kind of a, a middling lawyer, a failed politician. <laughs> and then he, but he, they just, he had a good radio voice and he right. gets involved with these, with one of these organizations that's making copycat legislation, right, for state houses. So right. the conservatives can get all these. So they just mobilized and took control of the state houses and got all yeah, this stuff done at the state level. In a very smart way. I mean, it, it's incredibly impressive how quickly they uh, dismantled the New Deal order, conservatives, broadly speaking. And they did it through incredibly effective organizing uh, and a particular form of organizing that is uh, effective in the American context. Right. And I think that people who are opposed to these sorts of ideas really need to take a look at, at what Marx might have called their actually existing historical conditions. Right. The United States is a very particular country with a unique history. And you need to understand its political structures if you want to make the sorts of changes you need to make in the world. And I don't think the left has been particularly um, effective in that. Yeah, this sense. is this is like, you know, you, the, the criticism I read recently of a lot of the people on the left about the Obama administration is they, they, they just 
put through so few judicial appointments in the first year. It's like they it wasn't even on the radar. Where you look at Trump and people at the Heritage Foundation and other people are saying you judges, 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 and they're just pushing. And that's going to last for decades, right? You put these thirty five year old judges on the federal. I mean, now they're going to be regulating policy for decades. Absolute decades. And I think if, if from a historical perspective, Obama's first year was one of the biggest missed opportunities in American political history. Um, the fact that he basically brought in the Clinton team to govern his economic policy is, I think, a, a real shame uh, and, and, and a real, uh, a real, I would even say disgrace uh, that given the uh, the opportunities presented by the Great Recession, uh, Obama did basically nothing to restructure our political economy except to give more power to plutocrats and oligarchs. And I think that that's one of his enormous failures as a politician and 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 as a leader. And as we go on and as the documents were uh, released, I don't know why that happened. Maybe it could have been his inexperience. Maybe it could have been these structures were just too large to take on. But I think it was an enormous enormous failure. And if people, uh, people of a progressive bent like myself, people on the left, if they want to make changes, let's say, should a actually progressive candidate win in 2020 or 2024, they need to start creating right now the institutions and networks that will be able to staff the White House, that will be able to staff the State Department, that will be able to staff the Treasury to actually make the progressive changes they want in the world. In other words, they need to augment the grassroots organizing, which is critical, with more uh, with a more elite-focused politics, which is where actually policy is made. And I think policy is made at the intersection of the grassroots and the elite, at least in this country and at least at this moment. So it's interesting because it seems like a pendulum swing thing, right? You, you, I mean, I had a guest on last year, a great guy, Tom Nichols, wrote a book called The Death of oh, yeah. Expertise. Yeah. Yeah. I disagree with everything he says politically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's got the best Twitter feed, though. He's got the best. <laughs> Do you know he's a five-time Jeopardy winner? I did not know that. Yeah, he's he's a he's a hilarious guy. But I mean, you know, his whole book, because he's saying, look, you know, th that the Trump victory was we've always had this kind of prejudice against intellectuals and stuff in America. He said, you know, he talks about being home from doing from home for the uh, from a break and drinking beers with his brother at some bar in Rhode Island. They said, what's your professor do? Or what's your brother do? He's a professor. And the guys were like, well, he seems like a good guy anyway. And this, but he said, you know, that, that like the skepticism in the Trump administration gets to adulation and celebration of the non-expert of ignorance of, of this kind of, you know, like, and, and so is this pendulum swing between like, okay, because right now with the Trump administration, it seems like expert experts sound great. I mean, maybe not defense experts because they're not dislodged yet, like in some ways, but you know what I mean? Like no, you just not. like, no. like, I mean, this scandal we have over Ben Car about Ben Carson spending 31000 dollars like you know furnishing <laughs> yeah. the hud thing is that the scandal or the fact that he what the hell does he know about hud is that you know it's funny because when he said that when he thought talked about him for health and human services he's like i don't have experience running a government agency well first why'd you run for president then <laughs> and b right. why'd you take the hud job now you know like right. i mean what, maybe these things are, are are so i mean is this the pendulum swing where you know we we're we're skeptical of this sort of bureaucratic elite class, the epistocracy, and then well, help us, save us, Obi Wan, save us, epistocrats. Right, and I think the way that I would phrase it, it's it's not so much um, a divide between expertise and ignorance, but a divide between expertise and emotion, uh, in the sense that sort of instinct. Right. Well, well, Trump, I think his greatest appeal was that he claimed that he had the instincts to run to run the government. You didn't you didn't need to know how to how to maneuver the bureaucracy. You didn't even know uh, how to particularly, um, you know, know an issue to make a decision. Right. It's this idea that you have this instinct or this impulse that you're speaking on behalf of the people that you're able to make these uh, enormous and these wise decisions. And I think that's a lot of where Trump's appeal came from. 
right? And I think that's also a problem with the presidency itself, where it's essentially a charismatic designed to be somewhat, uh, or at least is how it's evolved, is this charismatic leader who's able to, you know, instinctively understand what the people want. So when when people were critiquing uh, Nichols for being a professor, I think they're more critiquing the idea that Nichols would think that he would know more or would able to be able to make better decisions because he is a professor. Um, when that actually hasn't been shown to be the case, at least in the last 70 years of American history, which is what I know best. But that leads to a problem because you, th- you, you need the experts, but you also need the public. And this is the, a fundamental tension, I think, of democratic governance. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Kress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, and Andrew Stravitz. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. And you point out, you know, that on the dec- with the decline of, P- uh, of this class, you know, that you know, in the 60s, 70s, people like Noam Chomsky are, are very critical of this and writing, saying that intellectuals need to be people that lift up the truth, point out lies in our cultural landscape, not so aligned with institutions. Is it, is it that we need sort of we need intellectuals to function more descriptively for the public good as opposed to prescriptively for institutions? That's a great question. I mean, I think ultimately everyone just comes to their own opinion about this. I, I vehemently disagree with Chomsky. I think that um, when the the left left wing thought essentially retreated into universities or small scale publications, the left ceased having an um, the, the political left ceased having an important voice that could have been added to the chorus of, of labor unions and other sorts of forms of grassroots uh, organizing in the halls of power. So I, I disagree with that. I think intellectuals can and one might even say do have a duty to um, use their their powers in the service of making the world a better place, however that may be. Now, I don't think everyone should necessarily join the National Security Council, but I also don't think necessarily everyone should just write for, for Jacobin. 
And I think that you need to have intellectuals of, of um, a political persuasion doing both of those things at different moments. And I think you need to think about it in a very holistic way where you do have, for example, let's say you have a socialist on the National Security Council, or let's say you even have a plurality or a majority of socialists on the National Security Council. I think foreign policy would look a lot different. I would hope foreign policy would look a lot different than it currently does. So I think this is not um, a space that the left, that is the elite space and the, particularly the policy making space of the American state is not something that those on the political left should should abandon or should dismiss out of hand, which is uh, my major critique of a lot of the new left uh, intellectuals, which is uh, precisely what they did, even as they had, I think, very astute critiques of power. And I think the best one is C. Wright Mills's 1956 book, The Power Elite. Um, I think you also need to, to be part of, of, of the state and do what you can to make the world an actually existing better place, which is supposedly what we all want. But is the problem from your perspective that like what happens with people on the left is that they either kind of stay back in academic institutions or are, you know, or are writing critiques like this or or they get enfranchised and become status quo sort of figures that kind of right. they're more they're more interested in keeping the ship going as opposed to rebuilding it for you know <laughs> you know they, they, okay let's keep the ship afloat as opposed to redesigning it and uh, yeah i think that that's often true and i think that has a lot to do with um political culture so um as far as i know we're, we're in a relatively unique moment in american history where uh, the overwhelming majority of our political leadership class from both parties is above 70 Right. And I think this is this is really unique and problematic and, and points to a, an element of our political culture where there's not um, an interest in learning from the young or people who have different historical political experiences. So the way I frame it. So in 1972, the presence of the Rand Corporation was a 32 year old. Right. That would literally never happen today. So there's been uh, I'm not necessarily one for generational analysis or focusing on generational divide, but there is an element of our political culture where people with different particular historical experiences are not invited into the halls of power or into these status quo institutions that actually make these status quo institutions produce worse policy. And that's not a problem, I would say, of the left or all the, all the alternative experts, but a problem of the status quo institutions themselves. Because like you said, they want to perpetuate themselves. They want to perpetuate their careers. They want to continue um, making the policies that led them to a relatively comfortable life with access to the halls of power. And they don't really want to shake things up. And I think that's really problematic for policymaking in any state and particularly in a democracy where um, the elites are supposed to be accountable to the people, broadly speaking. Yeah, it's fine. I had a guest on last week, Chris Curtan, who wrote a book called The Age of Discovery. Mm-hmm. And he's comparing sort of the Renaissance to our time with all this displacement, technology and innovation, and yet there's inequality and displacement. And one of the things we're talking about, I wonder, do you think this is part of the problem that for most of world history, change doesn't happen as quickly as it does in a period like ours, a period. so like, Absolutely. So, so, so the social and political institutions don't have as much. When most people live and die in the world, their grandparents or maybe even great grandparents live in, by and large, right? And even if there is a, a some technological innovation somewhere, it doesn't instantly spread the way it does. Right. Is it that our our own political institutions just like we're not adaptive in the because we're? I mean, it seems like te- like technological. Change and discovery, and then the implications of that go so much quicker than our ability to to comprehend it and develop institutions that can function in that world. 
I completely agree. And I think, I think this, this really comes to the fore, uh, at least for me, the example that I always use with relation to this issue is the fact that so much internet law is governed by essentially analog phone technology law that, that hasn't been updated basically in 30 or 40 years. And I think that's a great example of how our laws and our institutions and our systems, which were specifically designed to be very conservative institutions, small C sense that they don't change often, are not very, uh, very adept at dealing with the world in which we currently live. And particularly what I think is really one of the, one of the top four or five changes in, in human history, um, the development of the internet and all these communication technologies that have essentially collapsed time where I could talk to someone in China right now instantaneously, where time is no longer – time and distance are no longer a thing, which has totally changed how human beings interact with the world to say nothing of the automation that is coming. So I think this is a particular historical moment where, where people um, who grew up in this era really need to uh, reconsider basic social categories. I'm not just talking um, ideas and policies, but what does it mean to work? In a society like this, what does it mean to have leisure in a society like this? What does it mean to live in a society like this? And these are the fundamental categories of human existence that have developed over the last 200 years that need to be totally questioned. And the fact that we're governed again by an ancient constitution dealing with a world that not only doesn't exist but hasn't existed since the 18, you know, tens and twenties is really problematic for the development of our society as a whole, not only for the United States but for the world. And I think that this is something that we need to confront uh, much more seriously. Now, the problem, of course, is that if we were to change our constitution tomorrow, it would be the, uh, the constitution is, is sponsored by Monsanto or by XE, right? So you need to – the only way that you'll be able to make these progress, uh, these positive changes is you need to have grassroots uh, mobilizing on the ground and have really an upswell. And this is a really problematic time in our history, and it just seems, at least from my very limited perspective, one man's opinion that the elite and the establishment has no idea what the hell it's doing. And it's in fact, fucking things up more than it needs to. <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it for me. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean it, in the, I mean, I think you could argue in the 18th century, right? When the founders are framing the constitution, a sort of centralized, heavy handed federal centralized government power is probably one, the larger looming fr- threat to the citizens freedom i mean now it, feel, it, now it feels like in the 21st century it's multinational corporations and business right yeah 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 they're, they're just yeah because they they you you know you can't i mean i remember when there was a, a law a, 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 a there was a bill in the california state legislature that got beat that just was like saying that you had to say if a food was gmo had right. gmos in it not what it was just whether or not it had it like you know like and that got beat. I mean, like, you know, you, you like, it's amazing that that's something that. Right. It, it's it, banal, you know, it's yeah, acid. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they have. Yeah. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Right. And, and what I'm hoping is that th- those sorts of things are, are the establishment overplaying its hand in a time of crisis where it's actually losing power. I mean, who knows? We might look back on that. I might look back on this five years from now and, and say I was naive and incorrect. I mean, after all, I thought Hillary was going to win the election. So what the hell do I know? But I think uh, what I hope is, is that this is the elite overplaying its hand. And you see that in the plutocracy surrounding Trump, um, that, that the fact that th- these people are doing what they're doing, that Jared Kushner is literally doing what he's doing in order to better his business interests. It's, it's literally the absurd. It's beyond farce at this point. It, it, it's postmodern in its, in its absurdity. And I hope that, that that indicates that the pendulum, as, as you mentioned before, that metaphor, that it's swinging towards a more reasonable 
um, more reasonable alignment of political interests. And what I what I've actually been starting to think is that it is swinging, and there is going to be an enormous change in the next 10, 15 years. Um, and 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 not I, not to be too crude or, or macabre about it, but when the baby boom generation finally leaves power, uh, or fi- because they're literally too infer- infirm to govern. I think you're going to see a lot of political changes relatively quickly when people with a very different historical experience start um, actually assuming power. And I want to say I, I don't want to critique the baby boomers, et cetera, the generational experiences. I mean, everyone they're 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 beaten on by people of our generation a lot, um, but they have a very different historical experience from the one that you and I do, and they therefore have a very different understanding of the world and the way it is from the one that you and I do. And I think as the world goes on, you need to have younger people in positions of political power in order to make positive and progressive change. It's interesting. Trevor Noah on The Daily Show was talking about the the recent Parkland shooting. And he said, you know, what's really interesting is to see these kids who are kids of relative privilege. uh, But in the face of suffering, not to dismiss their suffering, but they're privileged kids who, and what you see with the privilege kids, they're like, hey, no, we want to see the manager. (laughs) Like, like, this isn't supposed to work like this. So you picture Trump as coming out of the McDonald's back with a hat on. Can I help you? You know, like, but but there is something, I wonder about that, like, you know, a, a new. I kind of those students actually this isn't how things are supposed to work and we want something different right right so but the students have been told and as much as you and i you and i were probably told growing up in the 90s right you were growing up in the post-cold war period capitalism there is no alternative right and i don't know about you but as a child i really believed that until i actually had changing historical experiences which showed that maybe necessarily a uh, hyper hyper capitalism isn't the best way to govern the world and these kids were also told something different i don't know exactly what they were told because they're of a different generation than than my own but they were told something different and that story was revealed to be a lie and when angry middle class people are often the engines of political change especially in the united states and so hopefully this will be a harbinger of something uh, harbinger sorry of something um, really positive to come in the future. And I, I'm actually really hopeful and so impressed with all of these these kids coming out of the Parkland shooting. I mean, they're really making a change. I don't think the, the NRA is going to be able to sweep this under the rug like they were able to sweep under Newtown, which in retrospect is absolutely insane. That what it was, 26 or 27 children and, and adults were killed in that. It was, it, was, it was wild that that didn't become a major political issue. And what I, what I was actually thinking the other day, and, and tell me what you think about this, I think one of the reasons it didn't become a major political issue was that Obama was president. And the fact that Obama was president allowed people, liberals in particular, uh, in order to see that there was someone at the top. But Trump, you know, it's it's kind of like only Nixon can go to China. Only the NRA could only be defeated when you have a, a, an energized liberal base under Trump. And so hopefully we'll start seeing some of those changes going forward. Yeah, I think that you might be honest with me. You know, it's interesting. We, you Speyer winds up at the new school, right? And yes. he's at the same time, again, becoming disenchanted with a kind of socialism that he encountered, you know, that he was supporting in the Weimar Republic. But to me, like a lot of Frankfurt school people were there, right? And and to me, that's one of the most interesting kind of critiques of Marx, right? Like looking at how Marx maybe isn't taking culture seriously enough, you know, like it's, you can't reduce everything to a base economic engine. There's, and maybe it's not taking the individual as, as individual seriously enough. And, and, and some of the deep systemic critiques, but I mean, Speyer seems to be not, you see, you know, he's 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 not kind of is engaged. He's, he's some of the psychoanalytic stuff behind all that stuff, and other right. stuff. He's kind of not. He he's dismissive of. 
Right. So, um, so the Frankfurt School was at Columbia in the 30s, and there was another group of exiles at the New School for Social Research, the University of Exile, also in the 1930s. And basically, the way to the way to think about it is that Marx failed because the economic predictions of Marx that were lead to that the that Marx said that when the economic conditions change, this is roughly speaking, economic conditions change, politics will change, right? But then Hitler wins in Germany, so you have all these German Marxists saying, what the hell do we do? And there's basically, there's uh, multiple paths, but the two ones that I focus on in the book are, how do you, what do you do? Um, how do you explain that failure? And what the Frankfurt School tried to do was to incorporate a critique of culture um, using psychoanalysis in order to explain how culture essentially gave rise to false consciousness amongst the working classes, et cetera, et cetera. And which, which is one might read as a slightly more positive understanding of the working classes, even though Horkheimer and Adorno in particular were very critical of them. Um, but what Speyer did, he took an alternative path to the failure of Marxism, where he essentially embraced the thought of Max Weber, which was also a more cultural understanding of the historical and political change. But instead of focusing on psychoanalysis, which Speyer thought was ahistorical, because you're essentially saying that the human mind never changes and you could use these, um, these trans-historical categories and understand the human mind, which Speyer argued was that Weber's major insight was that society is run by status divisions and that Marx was wrong. Society isn't governed by economic changes, but by changes in status and by what people understand and these various cultures of status in a particular society. And and what Speyer uh, especially focused on was the high status of the military profession in Germany and militarism in Germany, which he thought was really critical to the rise of national socialism. Now, Speyer may or may not have been wrong about that, but I think it's uh, critical to understand that there are these two different possible responses, really more, but in this case, two different possible responses to the failure of Marxist economism. But ironically, what happens, particularly with the Frankfurt School, is it's taken up uh, in the 60s and 70s through Herbert Marcuse and a little bit through a rereading of Adorno and Horkheimer, particularly in the United States, is that the focus on culture becomes for the intellectual left the major focus. And you have the decline in things like Marxist economics and Marxist material analysis, which I think is also problematic. Like again, just like the like the left wing movements need to focus on both the grassroots and the elite, left wing critics need to take both the economy and culture equally seriously and see how both interact in a particular historical moment. So the way that I would do it is I would want to combine personally myself the Frankfurt School with Marx and Wishfire in order to understand how society actually functions in a given moment. Why did you want to study Spire? Like what, like at what point you're like, Hey, this is a guy ran corporation. I mean, this kind of this, you're, you're kind of a, you're a left of center kind of academic type. I mean, this is not, this know, doesn't seem unique. like somebody you had a poster of on your wall. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, Spire. <laughs> all right, man. I'm aspiring to Spire. Uh, I think that's a great question. And really because I, I, I grew up in the really came of intellectual age in the wake of the, uh, the wake of the Iraq war. And I started noticing people like Paul Wolfowitz, people with academic backgrounds, really justifying and getting uh, getting a hearing. And in fact, my senior year of college, I uh, did an internship at the Council on Foreign Relations. And so I was really in the center of the space where all these intellectuals were making policy, et cetera, et cetera. And I really wanted to understand how the hell it came to be that all of these um, uh, intellectuals, decide, uh, policymakers really decided to, to listen to these intellectuals. And why I decided to focus on a European thinker like Speyer is that I've always been very attracted to European social theory. Uh, personally, I find it more interesting and compelling than American social theory. So I wanted to pick a, an individual who'd be allow me to answer to ask this question about intellectual social role 
but also able to do it in a transatlantic context and to see how European theory was adopted and adapted in the American context and particularly in American institutions. And also, to be completely honest about it, when I was in graduate school, there was a turn to so-called international or transnational history in the historical profession, and Speyer was a perfect person. Uh, an exile is a perfect symbol of someone who literally crosses borders and would allow me to examine issues of cultural and intellectual exchange. So this is the Council on Foreign Relations. It's funny because I guess you'd put like Richard Haas, right? He's in this right. class of people, right? Yeah. He runs. Yeah. The, he's the president of the council. He's on cable. Yes. He's on Morning Joe, like tw at least twice a week, right? Yes, Richard Haas is, is a major public intellectual of our time. And, and what do you, I mean? How does Haas like play into the story with Spire? I mean, where do you see? Because you know, you're 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 there at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's the president now. Like, how, how where do you locate him in this sort of in in the defense intellectual complex? Well, he's. I think Haas, Haas really shows where the defense intellectuals are now. They're incredibly establishmentarian. They support the tradition, quote unquote, of U.S. foreign policy after the Cold War, which is really unilateralism and hegemony. And uh, the U.S. essentially does what it wants, which is true not only under George W. Bush, but also under Clinton. And I think he's, he's directly in the center of what the U.S. foreign policy establishment thinks. And, and therefore, it would not surprise you to learn that I often find his ideas stayed and, and frankly – uninteresting and boring. I know what Richard Haas is going to say before he says it. And what I would say is that institutions like CFR, institutions like Brookings, uh, places like those really need to incorporate more heterodox and, and in particular younger perspectives uh, into their uh, into their way of viewing the world. And when the, the sad thing about these organizations is that when they do take younger perspectives, it's often people who similarly have an incredibly establishmentarian centrist understanding of what the United States should do in the world. If I, if I were these organizations, uh, I would want to do what they were originally intended to do, which is to bring cutting edge avant-garde intellectual thinking into their sphere, as opposed to just re uh, relying on the common uh, common wisdom. So you're saying people, instead of being intellectuals that are sparking thought, you kind of, this is like where Nietzsche thinks all intellect is, right? It's rationalization. Right. So they just, these establishment intellectuals just become rationalizers for the establishment as it currently exists. Right, which makes total sense because I imagine I don't know, but Richard Haas lives. I would, uh, I would guess, a very, very privileged and, and wonderful life in New York City. The Council on Foreign Relations has a beautiful building. I'm sure he has a nice house, and I'm sure it doesn't really uh, comport with his life decisions in order to actually critique the American foreign policy establishment. Could you imagine? I couldn't even imagine for someone like Haas coming out with a critique of American intervention. For example, the best he could do was that silly uh, division between what was it, wars of necessity and wars of choice. Which is that, that? I mean, that makes no sense. Necessary, according to whom? According to your political, uh, your particular political ideology of a centrist post Cold War events. But but it, it's just like I know what Richard Haas is going to say. It's just frankly uninteresting at this point. And and it's sad that this is the person or, or one of the major people who are uh, who who we look to for foreign affairs. And I think you see a similar crisis, for example, that everyone's been talking about in the New York Times up web page. We have literally no one who's a Bernie supporter. How is that possible, right? That, that that seems to me absurd. The most popular politician in the United States who almost took down Clinton. How is there not someone on the New York Times op-ed page rec uh, representing this? And I think you see the centrist establishment sort of going into protect itself mode, and I don't think it's going to succeed, in not even the medium term, but the short term as well. I think it's going to fail. I mean, is this the tension between like – we hear everybody critique tribalism and the sort of acerbic nature of our public policy, right? But, you know, it's funny because I was talking a few weeks ago, I had a friend who's a pastor, activist kind of pastor in Minneapolis. 
And his congregation is not very diverse intellectually, mm-hmm. right? It, it, or politically. And he said, well, here's the thing. I, I, I tried to, like, he said, on congregational levels, it's probably true a lot of nonprofit organizations, the more diverse you are, the less activist and impactful you are. You know, mm-hmm. the, 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 the more tribal you are. Now, he's like, what I'm trying to get is between communities connecting the tribes, like, so there's more understanding. But if you want to get things done, it, it's just a tension because we talk about norms and and, and, and centrist, you know, and yet oftentimes, you know, the things that that advance change the most and change that are often oftentimes changes that could be more democratic and more egalitarian are things that buck norms and, right. and are not and, and, and cause cacophony and tension and, and you know, and disruption. Yeah, it, it, that's a very peculiar feature of the Cold War and post-Cold War American politics. Politics is nothing but tribalism. People have different beliefs. People have different value systems, and what's supposed to happen in democracy is that those value systems come together. They clash in the public sphere peacefully, of course. Uh, I, I don't think revolution ever works, uh, as it's historically proven not to ever work. Um, but you're supposed to be tribally associated. You're supposed to have particular interests. And what I think is that, that the only people who call for civility are the people in power. The establishmentarians who are already in power who don't want themselves to be challenged. Civility is one of the most absurd things for anyone to call for in the political sphere. You should be civil in the sense that you shouldn't personally insult someone with ad hominem attacks or attack them violently. Of course, if that's what we mean by civility and civil discourse, fine. But what actually people mean in practice is they don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be challenged that their ideas have failed that people don't agree with them and that there's entire swaths of people who want a different way of uh, – who want different people who have a different understanding of governing the world to occupy positions of power. So if that's what we mean by civility and tribalism, then I'm totally against the idea of civility. It's absurd. It's literally absurd and it will be looked at as historically absurd. When you wrote this book, you had privileged access to the RAND archives, right? Uh, yes. I, I have to say RAND, I'm very impressed with them. They gave me – great access to their archives. They're, they're, they're not afraid of a historian writing about what they want, because frankly, in, in my ideal world, Rand would exist and it would be great. It would be a, a great place for heterodox perspectives to fight among each other and then eventually come to some sort of conclusion. So yes, I, 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 I respect Rand for giving me access to their archives very much. What was it like walking around there? I mean, were we at the water coolers ever? I mean, you hear you're at the Rand. I mean, like what, no. do you feel the ghost of Spare running around there? I mean, what's it like? <laughs> Uh, well, at, at Rand, one isn't allowed to, to just walk around. Um, you have to be escorted everywhere you go. So I didn't really, uh, I, I wasn't really privy to any water cooler conversations. I, w- I was mostly uh, ensconced in the archives and the libraries. But Rand is a beautiful building in a beautiful location. It's in Santa Monica. Uh, it's it's a really cool um, sort of postmodern, modern uh, pastiche that, that I actually – uh, really enjoy, but I, I really wasn't able to. <laughs> I didn't have my run of the place, to say the least. Are you going to send the president your book? Like, hey, here's lessons from the past. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my next book is actually on the Rand Corporation itself. Um, so I'm, I, I, I've been helping Rand. They've actually been helping me. They're, they've been fantastic about helping, uh, about them building an archive and giving me access to all these materials, which as far as I know, no one has yet seen. So I want my next book to really answer the question is, how do we get an institution that is able to make good advice? What sorts of contexts lead to good advice? Because I, I, I don't have a conspiratorial view. I do think we need experts. And I do think I, – I, I imagine and I'm sure that Rands has made very good um, policy decisions, Very has offered very good advice over the, the, uh, the totality of its existence. And what I want to examine 
are what are the contexts that allows such good advice to flourish and to find its way into the hands of policymakers. I think organizations like RAND are important. They should be subject to more democratic accountability, and they should be subject to more democratic accountability, but you shouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You need to improve these organizations, not totally get rid of them. You ever drop your resume like on an assistance desk or anything where you're over there <laughs> like, hey, keep me in mind, heterodox. I'm heterodox. I got good opinions. Here you go. <laughs> no, no, no uh, um, I don't know. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I don't. I'm very happy in my uh, academic position. <laughs> it's, it's easier and kind of more fun to critique than to act actually get involved in the in the formation of policy. Hey, you're the I'm you're the one that said you're the one that said we need people, you know, we need people to go to get in there. Roll up yeah, their sleeves. I, yeah, yeah. No, if someone invites me, I'm not gonna say no. Unless it's the Trump administration, then I would say no. But so for to 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 give an example, let's say the Obama administration had called me and asked me to be an assistant on the NSC. It would have been very difficult to turn that down. And I think a lot of leftists would turn that down, and I don't think that's necessarily the wise choice. And of course, I respect anyone's individual opinions, et cetera, et cetera, but I just think that there should be a space for intellectuals at those tables. And if leftist intellectuals are involved, are invited, they should take advantage of those opportunities. Daniel, thanks so much for writing this book and for talking with me. And I hope that you know your ideas get a wide hearing, because we do need <laughs> some, some more ideas floating in the public square, especially at a time like this. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Daniel for coming on the podcast. Please do check out his book, Democracy in Exile. It's a fascinating read. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Till next time, friends. Fare thee well.